0: Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the
1: always entertaining Chris Sabolaro and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, this is it, and once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabolaro, and it's always a joy. It's always a pleasure. It is always fun when we have the opportunity to come and chat with you and share a little bit of our opinion and knowledge. And with me always my good friend kelly grayson kelly how are you
0: i'm making it man i'm i'm sh- been stressing lately over the cmt class i got starting but uh, again here we go with that's part for the
1: course come on let's hear it the, I, can we get can we cue the violins please well, like
0: i said it's <laughs> the world's smallest violins playing just for me oh no 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 uh, i
1: want you to hear no, them so i want they, them to be big
0: uh, i just um you know it's uh it's something new for me uh, i've, I've kind of worked out the uh, teaching a, a hybrid class, you know, where uh, where most of the of the class work is done through online self study is uh, is uh, I think is is getting to be the way to go to teach ems education it's the new evolution uh in ems education i'm just uh I, it's just my first time doing it on a on a uh a full scale so
1: yeah I'm uh, sure. i've kind
0: of worked out the worked out the kinks with some refreshers that we did and we saw what did and did not work uh and now we're gonna put it put it to use in in probably four EMT classes this year. So I'm excited, but I'm also, Jesus, it's it's a whole lot of prep and, and work getting everything put in place,
1: yeah, getting interesting. The, so,
0: the logistics done.
1: So think about it. Let's, l- let me ask you this question. So then from the standpoint of the instructor, I know you talked about more work, more preparation. Mm-hmm. Why is that exactly? I mean, is it that it's a different mode for teaching? Is it that it's that – yeah, I mean, what is it that's making it that much difficult? When you say there's so much preparation.
0: Well, when you're when you stand up in front of a classroom in a traditional classroom with a PowerPoint presentation and a laser pointer, you know you're you're teaching to a captive audience, uh, and they're mainly they're passive listeners, uh, and that is effective for some, but not effective for everyone. And but the thing is, is uh, even though you're doing more. Actual speaking, uh, it's pretty easy to do. You stand up, you talk. You know, you got a, a, an outline of what, what you're supposed to do right there on the PowerPoint slides, uh, and you just flesh them out. Right. You speak, they listen. Um, that's fairly straightforward, but it's not the, the best learning method for a great many people. Uh, whereas, on the other hand, uh, if you shift to a, a student-centered learning environment where where students focus on knowledge acquisition. Uh, at their own pace and in their own methods. Uh, and then what you focus on is, is knowledge integration in the classroom. Um, it seems like uh, at first blush to be less work, but it's not. There's a lot more structure to it because you have to you have to encompass uh, a number of different learning styles and 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 know how to integrate all that kind of stuff. And and you know just so your people are not just uh, not just winging it. You know you have to actually put some structure into it sure. and some a lot of thought into how these exercises are set up. It's not something you can just uh, ad lib. Right. Um, so. Getting that kind of stuff done is is something new for me, but uh, I'm finding it's you know it's in my wheelhouse already. It's it's the kind of stuff I do in class. Uh, now I just do it in a virtual environment. So
1: so uh, let me ask. It's gonna you, be fun. It's you mentioned the be le- new. You mentioned the learning styles, and that was really going to mm-hmm. kind of go to my next question. So how do you ensure the different learning styles are getting their needs met when it comes to this type of learning mode?
0: constant and regular interaction and evaluation you have to you have to test frequently not so much you know as an exam to to uh to see how well they're gathering you know not just so much to to see how well they're retaining the material and understanding it but to see how effective your methods are um so you your your testing is multidisciplinary as well you don't just do a standard uh multiple choice exam on paper and that sort of thing you you kind of test them in in non-traditional ways uh you may do question and answer you may grade them on participation you may do uh um, active learning exercises where there's a specific goal and outcome. Do they reach that goal and outcome? Um, and you have to, you you kind of have to to um, get outside the box where it comes to evaluating students. Uh, and and keep in mind that you're evaluating your methods just as much as you're evaluating the students. And if the students aren't getting it, there's something wrong with your methods. So that's you know something I mean, we've we to kind of play with in, in our refreshers, but.
1: Are you automatically going to go there? Are you automatically going to go there and say if they're not getting it, it's the methods and not the challenges with the student itself?
0: If the majority of students are not getting it, yeah, yeah. okay, it's the thoughts. methods. Okay, you know, I mean, if it's one or two students, you know, okay, well, maybe maybe they're just not cut out to be an EMT, or maybe they're just not capable of absorbing the level of material you're teaching. On the other hand, if you're doing, you know, if you're honest about your methods, and most of your people are not getting it. Uh, then there's something wrong with the teacher, not something wrong with the students. Mm-hmm. I think that's a huge failing uh, in a lot of EMS education. Uh, is a lot of lot of uh, people who are authoritarian type A people are, are attracted to EMS in the first place, and that's the talent pool we sub- select a, a instructors from. Mm-hmm. And then they they do that same approach to education. And if, if you ain't getting it, you're just dumb. You know, it can't be that I'm presenting it poorly. Right. Uh, it, it, the problem has to be with you, and and that's a problem in a lot of EMT classes. So, yeah, I agree. Uh,
1: you, you know, know, it'd be interesting. Got
0: to look in, it now and then. It'd
1: yeah. be it'd be interesting if we can, uh, as you go on, maybe we get one of your students on to kind of talk about this process, and uh, you know, because cause you and I have gotten letters from folks about you know what are good online programs and so on and so forth. So if this is going to be the mm-hmm. future. I think it is now comes, or I don't want to say it's the future because it's here today, but, um, you know, if we can talk to somebody who's going through it, maybe it opens up a lot of doors for the people who are out there to say, uh, I don't know if I want to go to a traditional uh, brick-and-mortar course or however that works, but uh, it'd be good to kind of hear from a student.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent idea. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to get someone, one of the students online. I'll, I'll keep Keep an eye out for talent.
1: Awesome. Uh,
0: but Inside EMS is already one of the podcasts uh, posted on their learning management system along with Confessions of an EMS Newbie and Crit, oh, and several nice. of the others out there. So,
1: Yeah, it's funny you say yeah. that because one so. of the things that I used to do all the time is, you know, Greg Fries, Editor-in-Chief of EMS One, Bill mm-hmm. Tune, Rob Terrio, they did a great job of, of doing the EMS Educast for a lot of years. And one of the things that I used to do yeah. is I used to make my instructor methodology students – Listen to the Educast, I used to actually mm-hmm. give them the podcasts to listen to, and then they had to come in and do a presentation about what they learned during that podcast. So, you know, th- yeah. there are a lot of great opportunities, I think, with these podcasts and and with the information that's out there that people can really get, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a smattering of experience, if you will, over vast mm-hmm. modes of, uh, of education. So, yeah, really cool, man. I mean, I bet I'd be interested in following yeah. this and seeing how it goes. Yeah I got another great idea. Let's go ahead and do some news. What do you got for us?
0: Well, there is uh there's a couple of uh stories coming up uh, on PTSD as it affects EMS responders. There's one out of Toronto uh, where a bill that recognizes PTSD as a work-related diagnosis for Ontario medics and and other emergency sponsors, uh, uh, other emergency responders will be voted on by their union. This uh, paramedics and communication officers who are representatives of four labor groups encompassing close to 8,000 paramedic members and public safety professionals will be in the uh, uh, will be uh, present at the uh, Legislative Gallery at Queen's Park to support and mark the event. It's Bill 163 uh, before the Canadian Parliament, I'm, I'm assuming. But uh, it's... Uh it's going toward normalizing PTSD as a job related uh disorder and, and hopefully getting the people who suffer from it uh some sort of better and more expanded benefits to to deal with their issues. Um and, and we wish the f- the folks in Toronto a uh success in, in getting that passed and we hope that their their union votes to uh to implement it. Uh and at the same time there's something similar in Columbia, South Carolina. There's a Senate bill Uh, that's going to allow first responders to receive workers comp, uh, has been slowed down, uh, due to some, some legislative, uh, or parliamentary tricks that one of the, uh, opposition senators to the bill, uh, has put in. He attached a minority report, which I'm not quite familiar with the, the parliamentary procedure, uh, uh, in doing such a thing, but apparently it is designed to slow down a bill uh, from from uh, getting passed out of committee and, and onto a vote. Um, you know, Chris, we, we talk a lot about PTSD and depression and mental wellness uh, among uh, EMS professionals, and it's something we need to shine a light on and, and get better treatment for. But at the same time, there are other people out there who discount the prevalence of PTSD and mental illness among public safety, uh, and, and a lot of them say it's a scam. Uh, and, and I would assume that the senator uh, who, is, um, who is opposing this, uh, Senator Ross Turner out of Greenville, South Carolina, is opposing this. I would assume he's probably one of those people you know the the bill in in south carolina sponsored by senator paul thurman out of charleston uh... has a companion house bill and would modify the requirements for first responders seeking workers comp for personal injury caused by ptsd or other mental illness um, and at the same time it is it is opposed uh... by senator ross turner out of greenville who filed the minority report to slow down the passage of the bill so how do you respond, Chris, to to people who uh, are who the naysayers and the skeptics for for PTSD and mental illness among uh, public safety providers? You know, uh, apparently Senator Turner doesn't really believe it's uh, it's a problem. Um, how do you respond to people like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, I, I, so, when we think about our political processes, I don't know that I've ever understood why politicians do the things that they do when they know that the resource, or we know that the bill is going to be able to give some type of, um, uh, I don't know, I guess independence, you know, give them some type of opportunity. And, mm-hmm. you know, how we respond to those things is, you know, I think we've got to be able to, to really begin that education. Now, here's one of the things that, you know, I wanted to say about Toronto, and, you know, I'll, I'll throw this out, I'm gonna f- I'll finish my thought, but I'm going to throw this question out to you now and kind of think about it is you know I give kudos to Toronto for what they're trying to do but my my question to you would be what has taken so long for this to happen now my, yeah. my as I continue this process as I continue my thought here you know the thing that really gives me pause when we talk about South Carolina is we have veterans who came back from the from the Vietnam conflict That suffered from PTSD for a lot of years. I mean, this isn't new. Mm -hmm. It's new that we're now bringing it to the forefront of EMS and to public safety. The the thing that's amazing to me now is all the veterans that are coming out of Afghanistan and Iraq that are suffering from PTSD. And and I've had these folks in my system as employees, and and they're having challenges when it comes to loud noises, and they're having challenges when it comes to, to quick flashbacks. And what is it that makes you and i who who are paramedics who sit in a truck or who or who run organizations know that this is real but our lawmakers who are supposed to be there to protect us and 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 make the right decisions for us are, are missing the point
0: you know i think it's i hesitate to to play the you ain't seen what i've seen man card but uh, I think it holds true here. It, it's very easy to discount the psychological trauma of of the things that that uh, military and public safety providers experience um, if you haven't experienced it yourself. Uh, even if you were never in a firefight, you know, for example, if you've been deployed in a war zone. Um, and you've never seen actual combat. Uh, the mental preparation and emotional preparation requires to be on your toes and be ready for one, uh, at any point, uh, because your, your life may depend on it is, is mentally and emotionally taxing as well. And the same thing holds true for public safety, uh, for cops, uh, and for, uh, firefighters and EMTs. If you've never, you know, even if you're a cop who's never drawn your weapon in anger, The fact that you need to be prepared to at a moment's notice on that midnight traffic stop in the middle of nowhere is mentally and emotionally taxing, and it takes a toll on people, Uh, and I don't think people who have been in that environment really understand it. you know, we say, you know, you said uh, what took so long in, in Toronto. Uh, Toronto realized they had a problem with some some hard-earned experience, man. Over the last uh, several years, there's been a huge rash of paramedic suicides in Toronto and, and uh, surrounding provinces. Uh and in South Carolina, you know, I would say to Senator Turner, so you know, in South Carolina, there's a study out there that says that firefighters are three times as likely to die by their own hands as they are on the fire ground. So, three times as likely to die right. from suicide as they are from a very dangerous job running into burning buildings. Right. Uh, that should be evidence enough that there is a problem there that we need to deal with. Um, you know, cops are are uh, roughly five times as likely to die at their own hands as they are at the weapon of a felon, um, and and if you don't know those statistics and see how prevalent this is among our pur- public safety brethren, it's easy to just discount it and go, Oh, you know, they're just they need to suck it up and they're trying to milk it and and this kind of stuff. Uh, I think we need to do a better job of educating uh, our our policymakers and our public officials mm-hmm. yeah. uh, in the problem and, and Toronto looks like they're doing this and I would uh, I would urge all our uh, South Carolina EMTs to uh, to contact their their senators and congressmen and and tell them the same thing we uh, they they have to vote their – well they should vote their constituents wishes right. um, but you know if you don't make your wishes known they don't know how to go with it
1: yeah, I have to agree. And it's a great story, and it's probably one that we can continue to talk about. I'll say if there's any listeners up there in Toronto that is close to this issue, we'd really like to get you on the show and kind of talk about it because I think that you guys are really setting the standards for other EMS systems to follow. Same thing with the folks down there in Columbia. If anybody is close to this and wants to discuss it on the show, reach out to us at the show at ems1.com and uh, come on and let's talk about it. But let's go ahead and go to my new story. And, you know, it amazes me, Kelly. <sighs> In in you know in the career that we're in, we have seen the the human body go through some challenging processes. I mean, how many times have you (laughs) seen? That's
0: quaint euphemism
1: for yeah. Yeah, how many times have you seen a vehicle split in half, and you're just looking for the ejection, and the person who's driving the car is standing next to you. I mean, so the body really absorbs a lot of trauma. And it it just amazes me at how people are able to survive in some of the things. Well, my story comes out of Bath, Maine, and it's a woman and son survive after an SUV plunges off a bridge 30 feet and lands upside down in the bed of a pickup truck. That was probably a Dodge Ram pickup truck, because that's the only thing that I know that would be able to pull a Mercury Mountaineer.
0: You know, I... uh i i what comes to mind is the the ace ventura line you know where he finally where he parks his car after just you know multiple rollovers like a glove that's right
1: but but you know here's a here's a vehicle now and actually i'm joking about the uh, dodge it was actually a ford f-150 and that's why the, the car didn't go anywhere so but anyway um but it's still the point of Here's a, a 37-year-old female and her 12-year-old son, and they go off the bridge 30 feet, which tips their car, and they land top-down in the bed of a pickup truck, and uh, just minor, kind of minor injuries. And, you know, but it just amazes me at, at uh, you know, the challenges that we go through and, and the trauma that we see. And people are able to walk away from them. But here's a great story of, uh, you know, I guess a great story in the end, but imagine the fear when these mm-hmm. people went off the highway and, and what do you think, you know, I mean, do you even think, uh, before you wind up, uh, you know, upside down in the bed of an F one hundred and fifty?
0: you know, and, and, and it tells it, two things come to mind to me reading the story. Number one, uh, that belies the old argument of people. Oh, they don't just don't make cars like they used to, and they're fans of old Detroit iron and all these plastic components and everything. It's just, you, you just tap a bumper and it tears up your car. Uh, cars are safer now than they ever have been. Since the invention of the automobile, uh, even though they uh, they tear up more easily because they're they're designed to protect their occupants, uh, and and this is testament to that fact. You know, plunge off a bridge upside down, land on another vehicle in your modern vehicle, uh, and you walk away. Um, where if you'd have done that in a '55 Chevy Bel Air, you'd be dead as a hammer. Uh, <laughs> you know, the the do you uh, think vehicles so vehicles. I think so. I, I oh, honestly man. think so. And the other, the other thing I would say is because of modern uh, vehicle construction technology and crumple zones and, and that sort of thing, uh, that also very much diminishes the value of mechanism of injury as a predictor uh, of actual trauma. Um, mechanism of injury is a concept that came about when we didn't have vehicles that are as good at protecting their occupants as they are now. So you had to look and say, okay, you know, well, this amount of damage to this vehicle probably did a good job of transmitting force to its occupants. And therefore we need to look in certain areas and look for certain things. Well, now that's not necessarily true. You can, you can be in some pretty horrific looking accidents in a modern vehicle and walk away unscathed because uh the the vehicle does a a good job of dissipating that kinetic energy and not transmitting it to the occupant. So, you know, this that's one one thing that has made the the concept of mechanism of injury uh almost an antiquated concept. It's not really applicable uh to the extent that it once was. Um yet we, we still tend to treat it like it's uh gospel. But uh, I'm glad the uh, the lady walked away from it and her son as well. Right. Um, uh, that's one of those uh, if you had a camera on scene, you would pull it out and take a picture of this because you you don't you don't see those very often. Um, but let's move on to another one. There is a study uh, just published it comes out of, or it's actually a case review series uh, on ketamine. Uh, for excited delirium. This comes out of Montgomery County Hospital District in Texas, worked and competed in some competitions with those guys, and uh, MCHD is a pretty, uh, a pretty good EMS system. And they uh, um, used ketamine uh, starting in 2010, and they've been collecting QA data uh, on the drugs used for sedation, pain management, RSI, and they've got some, some interesting stuff to say about its use uh, in uh, excited delirium. And I want we've talked in, on the podcast before uh, about patients in excited delirium and that, you know, conventional restraint is, is not sufficient uh, because you got a patient in ED. Um, if you restrain them, uh, you may be safer, but the patient is in no less danger uh, because the fight is still ongoing you know you have to stop the fight uh and when you strap a patient down to the stretcher of the spine board the the fight merely shifts from you to the restraints uh and sedation and, and chemical restraint uh is is paramount and ketamine is 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 growing uh a reputation as being very effective in this regard um so nice to see some uh some stuff about uh Using ketamine uh, as sedation in and, and excited delirium, and, and suggesting that it's a uh, that it's a safe and and effective uh, drug to give. Um, you familiar with ketamine, Chris? Did y'all yeah. use it at, at Christian, or, or had you implemented it yet?
1: No, we didn't use it, but it was something. Well, it was something that we didn't implement uh, yet. Talking with the medical director, it, you know, he was one of the guys that wanted to uh, look at the research and make sure. And certainly, what's coming mm-hmm. out of sec, what's By coming now out, of- we're
0: getting research, yeah. right?
1: Exactly. Now, what's coming out of Texas? Uh, this really gives you the great opportunity to say, you know, where has this drug been? Well, it's been there. We we just needed to make sure that it was going to do uh, what we wanted it to. And Rob Dixon, who's one of the authors of the article, it posted on the fourth of April. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to EMS one and uh, read it. I think it's a great article. But Rob Dixon, who's one of the authors. Uh, we've been in communication, Kelly, and we're hoping to get him on the show so we can talk about it because I think it's important for our providers that are out there to hear, you know, the opportunities that ketamine has been able to to help patients. You know, we've been dealing with excited delirium and looking for ways to, uh, you know, looking for ways mm-hmm. to treat excited delirium for a long time, and this could be the this could now be the uh, uh, you know the magic carpet that's going to be able to make the difference when it comes to dealing with those patients. And I gotta say, man, I think we both have to stand stand. up shoulder to shoulder and start to applaud the work that's happening down there at Montgomery County Hospital District and, uh, you know, give them kudos for this research because there is not enough research that is coming out about the medications that we use. And it really is kind of uh, uh, baffling that if we have the opportunity, you know, to do some research. Uh, how long have we been talking about the, you know, intubation being, uh, you know, that paramedics increase the mortality of patients when we intubate? Uh-huh. Well, when is somebody going to step up and, and let's start doing some, you know, research on that? But, you know, again, hats off to the folks down at and Montgomery say, County. And, and
0: saying, not in our system, and here's our data to back it up. Exactly. Um, you know, and uh, and that's, yeah we do have a, a, a paucity of, of EMS focused research uh, done by EMS systems and professionals. Uh, quite often we have people that are, do not practice EMS and, and have no idea of the the nuances of pre-hospital care doing research and making, and it's not so much the research that's the problem. It's the, the inferences and the conclusions they draw from the research uh, and the variables they didn't control for because they, they're just unfamiliar with what's with, you know, what, the environment entails, and and it's nice to see some stuff coming out of a uh, a pre-hospital system right. uh, focused on the very things that are are, are relevant to us. Uh, uh, my employer is getting ketamine, so uh, I took our protocol online protocol update the other day, and one of the uh, agents we're adding, among several others, is uh, ketamine system wide for things like sedation and analgesia, uh, and uh, I'm. It's been on our air med units for, for a couple of years now, and the flight medics love it. Uh, as a matter of fact, they the ones, flight medics that I've encountered on scenes uh, would prefer to use ketamine uh, as an induction agent for uh, intubation rather than go the full route of RSI. Um, and that's the way a lot of you know, people use able to they, they that's you, right they're yeah. able to snow someone and 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 control their airway without affecting their hemodynamics or their respiratory drive so the, you know it's it's not as uh you know you you give someone rock uh, or sucks god forbid uh and you can't get an airway well you've just converted a compromised airway into no airway at all congratulations no, i don't uh, believe that but Come uh, on. not so with. how Kevin. could you
1: say that it's true. I mean, so it's you don't true. intubate somebody, you, know, you go back to the bag valve mask, and, and you're able to you secure. Well, yes,
0: but but one of the you know, if you're going to the trouble of of uh, paralyzing someone, uh, it's a it's a, f- a fairly good bet that your your ability to bag the patient is, is somewhat diminished as well. It shouldn't be that way. Um, but all too often, people use RSI as a uh, as their their safety net for you know it's going to be a tough tube and make it easier by paralyzing the patient um, and and intubating uh, it makes intubation easier. Uh, I don't necessarily think it makes intubation any easier uh, in in most cases. Or I tell you, let me rephrase that. Uh, yes, it does make endotracheal intubation easier in many cases because you don't have the patient fighting you. Um, but it is not an excuse for, uh, it's not a, uh, a replacement for good airway skills. As a matter of fact, your airway skills have to be better than, than ever uh, if you're going to reduce someone's respiratory drive to zero. Um, but uh, if, you can, if you can achieve the same thing, uh, without in uh, reducing the patient 's respiratory drive and without substantially affecting their hemodynamics, I see no reason why we shouldn 't use it, which apparently our medical director believes the same thing right. so it's going to be nice to, to have ketamine as an option on the truck. Uh, we're kind of dipping our toe in the waters first. It's going to be a uh, uh, medical control uh, order for, for most things. But, you know, um, as you make uh, changes like that, uh, as your comfort level grows with it, I'm sure that will loosen up like, uh, like other things have right um our spinal just loosened up a lot uh and it was fairly loose to begin with we're we're almost to the point where we're we're doing away with spine boards which is a good thing
1: yeah well that's so. that's way behind but let me go ahead and usually this is the time we're going to wrap up kelly but I, I feel compelled to do one more story and you know I think we all have our charities that we believe in. You certainly uh, killed it to kick cancer. Uh, you know, you, you or, or even though it's not a charity, you give your time to the Code Green campaign. But I think we all support our charities, and we find ourselves to be very, very close to them. But any time, and certainly I don't, and I don't share my thought of, you know, you need to uh, donate to the charities that I recommend. But one of the things that I really like to do is, Anytime someone in our career field has been compelled to develop a charity, I always want to try to bring light to that to see if we can help and support. So this story comes out of Australia, Australia, and a medic supports SID charity after his son died from uh, SIDS. And this is a very, very sad story, but if there's a silver lining to it, you know, it's the opportunity to say, can we help as a career field and, uh, you know, support our brother over there in Victoria, and uh, you know, help support uh, you know the charities, uh, the charity after his son died of SIDS. So a little bit about the story is uh, you know the paramedic you know turned down his street, and as it says in the article that you know it looked like there was a bunch of Christmas trees um, you know on his on his street. Um, realized that the mm. call was in his home, uh, found his wife holding the baby. Uh, the baby was dead from uh, sudden infant death syndrome. And since that, the couple, um, they've been really kind of working for, with the SIDS charity to kind of bring recognition and to kind of, you know, uh, help uh, the families that are going through the challenges. And, you know, there is a link uh, that if you want to help. But one of the things I think is is when we get into a position of um, our, our brothers or sisters – That have had some challenges. We really have to be able to rally together and try to give as much support as we can, Kelly. You know, you've made uh, on this show. You've talked a number of times about how we're behind our police and fire brethren of how they take care of each other. And I think that we now need to start to think about even if if we give a dollar, even if we give five dollars, and if everybody in the career field did that, um, you know, there's going to be some great uh, money that goes into this great charity. So I really like to kind of bring recognition to those things.
0: Kudos, kudos to them as well. Uh, I can only, I uh, no, I can't imagine what it would be like, uh, to, to come home and, and find your, your infant child dead from SIDS. Uh, um, but apparently, you know, he has, he's used it to, to motivate him and, and to, uh, to, to bring strength and, and help to others, uh, who've been in the same situation. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what EMS really is all about. uh, uh I think a lot of us, uh, seek uh look outward uh to help others i think we all know what it is to experience pain and loss um and and part of our professional ethos is to to help others and to reach out and help others uh what better way to do that than than help out uh a charity dedicated to helping the parents of of sid's children so uh urge you to to look that up and uh on ems one and and donate if you have the uh the funds and the wherewithal to do so right so that's what we think, but we'd like to hear what you think. So email us at the show at ems1.com. Give us your concerns, comments, questions uh, about today's topics. Uh, and for myself and co-host Chris Sabolaro, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.